0: What it boils down to is that leaders are afraid of change, right? Because they're playing not to lose. and that's... Instead
1: of playing to win.
0: Exactly. Instead of playing to win. Welcome back to the journey. Let's plug in.
1: You have 24 hours a day. Organize your day. Work hard. I'm here to talk about success.
0: I admire your luck. Mr. Mister... Bond, James Bond. Let's get it. Welcome to Electric Theory.
1: My name is Ray James Ray, in the <laughs> fashion of 07. That's right. That's right. We
0: couldn't have a more special guest for this particular 07 episode. None other than James Ray. Happy to be here. You, I, I'm glad that you're here. I couldn't wait to. Start this conversation. We typically have a weekly scheduled conversation around this exact time, so we're just going to continue the conversation. I had some questions prepared, but I'm like, we don't do that when we normally connect and we normally meet
1: indefinitely. We could do that all day long, but we can jump from topic to topic and bring it back around.
0: Exactly. To me, right? Like you're in a transitional period, and when we connected last week and we were talking through some of your transitions, the way you handle transition and adversity was displayed to me in real time, right? So we've talked about your past experience and how you handled adversity and some of the things that you overcome. And typically, most people like to just, when they're talking about their past, they'll throw out their highlights. And it's not maybe necessarily how they respond to certain things and certain experiences, but to get to see that in real time, it was very inspiring. And you just You essentially have done what you've been doing your entire life. Is when you know you're through a curveball, you just make the most of it and keep trucking. So I want to know what really shaped that mindset to just not only keep powering through, but to do it with so much poise.
1: I believe that it came very early in my life with respect to that being able to pivot. Is people talk about companies making a pivot? Right, but individuals make pivots all the time. Right, going into a new experience, the uninformed optimism that we have when we right. go to that situation, and then you get into a informed pessimism. Mm. They push through because they don't all tell you all about the bad or the tough stuff in the company or in a relationship, and so. You have to push through that and get to hopeful realism. And that is where you can sustain commitment to that choice that you've made. So that's where it starts. And as I went to Texas A&M University, getting Aggies. and I went there at the age of 17, I went into accounting. And praise God, accounting is easy for me so i got through it but here's an example arthur anderson is in many ways akin to hiring mckinsey and booz allen all of those consulting firms and they don't take people with the gpa i had but it's about framing it because the framing was that i had a 4.0 in accounting i had a 3.3 in college of business but in those couple of years, I hope you didn't do well. Overall, I think I graduated at point, 2.86. And but I got a job. That's the first big leap in, in my life to jump into a firm like that. Did very well there. Got my CPA certificate and all that. But ultimately, to be truthful, auditing is boring. Yes. Sir. It, boring. So... I got in the consulting division. And so that led to a lot of opportunities, working with some of the greatest companies in the U.S. and some overseas. And that built a foundation because when you're in a consulting firm, you bounce around, right? You go for a three-month or a six-month or a 12-month assignment. Right. But then when you're done, you jump with another pool of people form up that team and go do that project. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, helps a lot to have that experience that every three to nine months, you're joining a new company. You're joining a new group of people at a new company, often in a new industry. And so you have to learn fast and build relationships really efficiently.
0: That's essentially your strong suit. (laughs) little did they know right cuz I, I know about your childhood and i want you know you to tell the audience a little bit about that but you having to bounce from school to school when you were younger really helped shape that act for agility and being able to go and from project to project with, without skipping a beat so could you tell us a little bit about like your childhood and
1: yeah yeah i was born in jackson mississippi i was born in 63 but in 1968 my parents moved to Houston. And that was the space race. Houston was blowing up. It's a very cosmopolitan population because of the energy, energy sector, oil and gas. People move in and out of Houston all the time because they're rotating in these international companies. And I had no idea that was the the deal when I got there. My my dad went to work for an Eckerd Drugs, you probably don't know those, but came to a Walgreens, but He had a long career in retail and he finished it up with Walmart. My mother was a savings and loan. We don't have those anymore. It's a savings and loan manager. And so both of them were hopping from job to to get an opening that got them further in their career. And so I guess that's where I got that too. But they were able to stay with a company but move to a new branch of that savings and loan, or go to a new retail store where an opening came out that it was a step up. So in the first five years that I was in Houston, and I was five when I got there, first five years, went to a different school and lived in a different place for those five years. One year at a time. Five different schools. Five different schools. We just would move. So every fall, I was a new kid in the class. And I do believe that ability to work a crowd, to just find commonality and try to reach the humanity and the people that I encounter, that's something that comes natural. And it may be that I, I was overcompensating to say, I want everybody to feel welcome because I wanted to be, feel welcome.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's how that worked. Um, huh. you know my story, and it's very similar to yours in terms of having to bounce around. Do you think that because we were just like so inundated with transitioning, that affects our relationships? right? Because it seems like it's something where you're used to building a relationship with someone rather quickly and then having to move on. Does that have that affected any of your relationships or romantic relationships or
1: business relationships over time? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that has substance because it's easy to build a shallow relationship just so that you can belong or you can, those relationships don't last. And when it's geographically imposed where you don't have access to your last year's school class, you're starting all over. And so I think there's some substance of what you're saying in terms of do you build relationships to last or do you build relationships to get comfortable? And I don't know that I have an answer for that. I would tell you I was not the most empathic guy in early years. I was focused, I was trying to advance in a career that would provide for a family. And I was really focused. I've always been in in sports, work, all of that. I'm always a good teammate Yeah, and I'm always supportive of the team, but I've not always been one to have the empathy that I should. Great. Could you explain that?
0: Sorry, before you continue, I just, I want to know personally, and I'm sure the audience would appreciate the difference between support and empathy. Sure. Because you you were always supportive, but not as empathetic.
1: Yeah, I can support someone by having a conversation with them that they want to have and help them understand something, help them understand the path to their next position, understand the next step in this consulting gig, that can support. But I was not at that time particularly empathetic in terms of what's going on with them in their life. And I was not at that point, I was not feeling the anxiety that they were feeling. Mm. And you, des- you described it as a muscle, and I agree with you because it was a puny muscle for me. Because I thought everybody else, I mean, this is a competitive firm, right? So everybody that they recruit, top notch. And I'm just like, like you playing on D1 football and you're out on the game and you're like, okay, we're all good. Let's go. But did you feel what your O-line was feeling in terms of their minds and their stress? No. So. If you're playing on on an elite team, you're like, oh, you guys, we're all here because right. we have the talent to play this game. Let's read the plays, let's execute the plays, and we're gonna we're gonna win. But we're not necessarily thinking about, dang, I did not make that block, but once all week on that defensive end, and I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it. I could be going through a left tackle blind side. Right. So that's an example from sports, but while i was a I felt I was a good coach and I, and people tell me I'm a good coach, but I did not in any way relate to the any emotions that they may have been having about what we were trying to do. I can coach them and put them in position and make sure that they understand the playbook, but I wasn't as sensitive as I could have been to see what are their anxieties and how can we get those out of the way. And so I began to grow that muscle through my career and through just life. You grow that muscle? I think, first of all, I had to become aware of it. I had to be aware that I'm not really tuning in to that anxiety. I understood what they wanted to do, wanted to be, and I could put them in the right spot for that. And I just think, how did I start? And just a little by little, I had a colleague that became a close friend. And when she first met me, in retrospect, she said, someone asked her what she thought about me when she met me. And she said, I thought it was a pompous ass. And that is a, we all have blind spots and that was a direct illumination of my blind spot because I was all about having, I was perpetually reading and studying and all of the work that I had to do and learn everything I could about creating environments where individuals can achieve their optimal potential and that came to me at 28. We've talked about that. We'll come back if you want to later. But I the want full, yeah. But I, I was going back to the ideas and that I was a very an intellectual, a very strategic thinker. And I would use that to harness the team's potential and get them aligned in the right spots to mm-hmm. you're focused on this. Let me know what you need from me. Correct. You next person you're focused on this let me know what you need from you and i've always been a servant leader that's i have but i'm a much better leader beyond being a servant leader because now i care about what they want out of the experience and what they are experiencing and i think it's made it make made me a better leader and after I got that blinding glimpse of the obvious in my uh, my what did I call it blind spot, I started to read about it, and it was about the time that Daniel Goldman came out with the concept of EQ, the emotional yep. quotient, yep. and IQ, yeah, and that fit with me, right? High IQ, low EQ, yeah, not awful, not harassing, not in, completely insensitive, but when I recognize that I, high IQ, yes, eh, fairly EQ. And what does that mean? So I started to get better. What does that mean? What, how can I be a better coach and mentor? And it starts with EQ. And that's where you got to go back and revisit your life and understand. And developing that, the ability and empathy is very central to that process. Uh, yes so you can understand so that's it
0: yeah no I agree and I'm glad you brought up Daniel Goldman because he I believe he said EQ contributes to 80 percent of your success while IQ only contributes 20 percent what are your thoughts on that because like you said you became a better leader once you became more and and once you begin to lead with with empathy. so what are your thoughts on intelligence being the driver of success
1: yeah, I think I believe he's accurate with that because IQ, a lot of people have IQ but right. Look around. Right. And there's a lot of dysfunction that goes right. along with high IQ and low EQ. And so I believe that because particularly when we've got college degrees and all sort of stuff, that the intelligence is almost assumed, but at to a certain level. And but when you think about Eighty percent is based on EQ. It's because the IQ is relatively the same in those populations. Whatever population you're in, the IQs are pretty, pretty relatively same. But the EQ does make a difference because yeah. you can pay attention to things that you the others are not, and you can engage with them at a different level and recognize what drives you doesn't necessarily drive the other person. And so that leads us to diversity, right? We're going to come back to that for sure. But the yeah, so it does because everybody's different. Right. Everybody's different. And so if your IQs are relatively equal and you have a stronger EQ, then that is going to be noticed. Right. Because you will have the ability to cultivate followers and I don't right. mean that in a cultish way I right. mean that they trust you when you are attentive to that and that how you that's how you get teams aligned right. and wanting to be successful somebody with an IQ that doesn't give a penny for their emotional and their outside of work that's not they're not going to be rooting for that person yeah they're not going to put it all on the line for that person and so i, I think that's why it's so important and your quote daniel Gomez, i believe is truthful and so once you're aware of it like anything we've all got blind spots right. and when that blind spot has been illuminated it's a choice to ignore it and just be who you are, and this is who I am, and I'm not changing. Or embrace it, embrace it, and find your weakness in that area and work on it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or what? Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Or ignore it, or ignore it, and get the results that you've always gotten.
0: And I'm glad you, I'm glad that you went ahead and finished that because my next question was going to be about corporate America. And you've been working in corporate America for quite some time now. And to me, as you have mentioned, you mentioned engage, diversity, empathy, relatability, all of those things I think are very much so important to engagement of employees while they're there in an organization and i believe mm-hmm. it's been a huge blind spot as you mentioned to corporate america yes. for some time and with you being one of the trailblazers of wanting to create cohesive cultures and a cohesive teams what challenges did you face starting let's just say 15 years ago 20 years ago what challenges were you facing yeah. that that are still prominent now
1: that's an interesting question on that time frame Because that was during the time that I was building some great teams, effective teams, diverse teams, and the ability for those teams to, to outperform. That was working. But I had leaders who were out of head and sand. right? And so it was like pushing the rock uphill, Sisyphus pushing the rock uphill to say, okay, we've done all this work. This is the path. Right. And they would say, no, that's never gonna happen. we no, that we don't need to do that. We don't need we don't need to change that. So having success with the team does not always translate to accomplishing the goal and pushing that boulder up. We got the deal. Here's the here's a fully informed opinion with respect to what our strategic moves should be next. And when presented. To executives, I'm not going to name any names now uh, or companies, but when presented to executives, um, you get in a corporation, the more you are playing not to lose instead of playing to win. Yeah.
0: Can you say that one more time? Because I just wanted to resonate. Yeah. Because i executives... that's going to become hot again here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So this is just the right on team quote.
1: Yeah, it is for me. It's that I was with A when voice over IP was built in Bell Labs, okay? Voice over IP, meaning the E T and t made most of their profits on long distance telephone calls. So they were scared to release that genie out of that bottle because it drove international long distance to pennies from dollars. So Bell Labs, an extraordinary organization, presented it to the executives and there, I was in the room and there was a lot of looking at each other going, we can't let that guy, out. We can't let that gout out, get out into the market. I'm only five years away from retirement and I need that stock to stay right, right where it is, right, right where it is. Now, this is a well-chronicled failure and it wasn't just about the refusal to embrace voice over IP, but it was exemplary of executives who are playing not to lose. Instead of playing to win. Instead of playing to win. And the higher the executive in the organization, the more wed he is to what is working right now. I did not work for Kodak, but it's another story. Kodak was the first provider of a digital camera. Most people don't know that, yeah. but the executive said, we make our money selling film, He classified the company as selling film, producing film, selling film, that's our profit. Little adjustment to that conversation was, and should have been, we are in the business of preserving images. And then you're not worried about the underlying technology. You're going to say, I have to get that technology to continue our mission to preserve images in a digital era. Very different, Yeah, very different. And so those are just two examples. And so I just want to say that I've had that experience getting to the mountaintop and talking to the executives and showing them a future that requires drastic change to maintain leadership. So the teams were fantastic. We had great evidence and forecasts. And you get there and they say, yeah, nah.
0: Yeah, no. So what I'm gathering is really just like what you opened up with when I asked the question, which is essentially what it boils down to is that leaders are afraid of change, right? Because they're playing not to lose. and Instead
1: that's... of playing to win.
0: Exactly. Instead of playing to win. And, and when I think about the category creators, and I just heard this last night, you think about Nokia, Samsung, all of these like smartphones that came out first right? No one's using a BlackBerry anymore, right? And what I found fascinating when I was looking at this chart yesterday, Apple essentially came in, defined the problem, said, hey, you're using smartphones. At least that's what they call them, right? This is what Steve Jobs is saying. At least that's what they call them. They're not easy to use and they don't seem pretty smart. And I think that takes confidence and boldness to not only deliver that, deliver on that, but then to to innovate on something that's already existing and what that did for him is he took what like 80 90 percent of market share uh, that's insane the market cap it, is insane for Apple and it's something that I think to your point he Steve Jobs played to win
1: a hundred percent he did and he also recognized don't ask the customer what they want because they don't know. We had asked the customer because they don't know because they have not envisioned right. the po- possibility of combining a Nokia phone and a Sony PlayStation not PlayStation, but a Sony MP3 player. Right. Customers, what well, that's where Sony's got me there. I've got that. I've got it on my wrist. I can play music. And my Nokia phone is awesome. Right. But He said, no, it should be one device. And if you ask customers in that time, they say, do you want to play music on your phone? They'd say, no, my phone is for work. My phone is for communication. My, My Sony player is for relaxation. I don't want those two things. They're two different things, and that's how I use them. But you combine that with elegant design and game over. Right.
0: Game over. It it just—I love that story, and I love like what he's done. And I don't think that we come back to his story enough because it's all about framing, and that's something that you started this conversation Mm. off about, right? I can't remember the exact thing that he said, but he was like, "How would you, if you could put thousands of songs into your pocket, right? That reframes someone's mind, right? Because like at the time, you couldn't put a stereo in your pocket, you couldn't put a massive CD player in your pocket, so you're like, it starts." you start to become curious and think about it like, okay, I would. How important is it that we begin to frame things in the best way that can help bring people to fulfillment and find purpose and be able to express themselves? Because I think that the way that we're framing just society right now is toxic. What's one way that you Just that we can start to look at things differently or suggest to leaders how they can reframe things to their teams to just create more
1: alignment and less toxicity. Based on my experience in multiple companies who have gone to that mountaintop and I've been thrown off the ledge, I think for people to want to contribute to a mission-oriented platform, whether it's electronics or anything else, They want to trust that it's going to be accepted by the executives because there are so many drones in these organizations who say, this is not working, but I get paid to do this. I get my four weeks vacation. I've got my no pensions anymore, but I got a 401k and I'm just working it out. There's not a lot of enjoyment in those jobs and that's why i have not stayed in any of those jobs but to get the alignment it has to be captivating it mm. has to be it has to be in reach so if i started a company today and there uh, there is a company that has been started that's trying to create aircraft that can get you anywhere in the world in an hour right okay Noble, but what resources are we going to consume there? So it's it's definitely out there. It's a stretch goal, a very much goal. So people need to see that it is possible. And you talk about framing, framing the problem, framing the solution, and framing the execution. That all has to be in aligned and aligned for the people who are going to take you on that journey. And so that's what I don't see in a lot of companies. There's zombie companies. They're just doing what they've done for 100 years, and it's what, they're, so, they're so dominant, they don't need to change. Right. Zoom out
0: to what dominant actually even means, right? Because the apples of the world, they're dominant. So if they have like about what 90%, if not more, of that market share, right? That means almost every other company in that space is breaking even, if that right? Like maybe one like Verizon, Samsung, they may be breaking even and everyone else is losing money, right? So like the way they would frame it, right? Let's go back to framing. They would say, hey, we're up 30% on X, Y, and Z. And it would seem as if they're profitable, but most of these companies aren't even profitable, right? Like you said, and just been dominant. I think that just going on a limb here, as we're talking about framing, I think we need to frame KPIs and the value metrics of business different because what it does is allow like the way that we have it set up now. What it does is allow people to just really be subpar and then go for a series B, be subpar, go for a series C, and then treat their employees in kind of way, to be subpar. But like there, there really isn't too many dominant businesses where. I've seen them continue to disrupt and disrupt. It's starting to spin in a circle. Even Apple, we're praising Apple right now, but what's been really innovative, I know they just released these goggles, but came up there and was like, hey, you figure out what to do with them. And it's just like, they're losing a little bit of spark. Pixar is losing a little bit of spark. I just think that we're starting to spin our wheels because of the generations that are next, right? Like millennials, Gen Z, like we're looking for different metrics of value that I don't think is mm-hmm. being right now. So what is your advice to those who are still trying to continue to frame it a way that's not really relatable to us and our generation and the generation below me? <laughs> What's your advice to them? Because I, I think that there's, it's a real, it's, it's a huge gap. I think that there's just a lot of discrepancy there from framing yeah. relatable to us. So I don't know if that well, question he- may, but I can rephrase it if I need to, but if, what advice would you give to executives maybe who are trying to relate to their employees or to the community in a way that was valuable once before, but it necessarily isn't valuable now. How would you align their value, essentially? My
1: starting point is to recognize that every generation starting with Gen Z grew up with everything on demand. Mm. On demand. Right. Because YouTube will entertain you all day long. Right. Netflix is endless streaming. Everything is on demand. And so it is also in this economy. I've been on this track for about five or six years on demand, convenience driven. And I was working with JP Morgan with CPGs and other multinational corporations to help them understand that we are now in that generation. So we're in an on-demand economy and the convenience driven part of that is this is who they will choose to fulfill that on-demand convenience driven. So I think every executive needs to understand that because it changes everything.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because I think that's how the country was founded, right? Like it was even it was founded in a sense, like the way I think about it, for convenience. Right. And like mm. in the the ability to get a house that's easier here than in other countries. To sure. to be successful is easier here than other countries. That's just how it was built, right? Like it was built on the American, American dream. The American dream, right? So it's, I don't know why that's not connecting. And another thing I just thought about, we're talking about the American dream and the founding fathers, I'm not a history buff, correct me if I'm wrong, but when Europeans came over here, the type of people that they were inviting to America was people who didn't want to be a part of their country and they wanted to live free. So when you think about that, those are the cognitively yeah. diverse people. So you're having Yo, yeah. people come to America and that's how this country was even founded. I don't know how we got so far away from that because that's like our like what we've do, done and what we do just like our and part of our personal core values is just yeah. that diversity aspect cognitively. Right. And that's what America was even founded on. It was founded with diverse people who were like, hey, we should do this. We should do that. Oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. We should do that. And all these different people had a seat at the table with different thought processes. And now it seems like we've gone away from that to where it was like, hey, if you don't think like me, then you're not allowed to set my table.
1: Yeah. The challenge with that is that we are in an era where a representative democracy is not representing me or you. It's the representative government that we have is influenced How many more people have to die in mass shootings before we take AR-15s off the streets? It's that is the money. That is where the money is going. And so it's corrupted. And I don't mean to insinuate it's overly corrupted, but it is corrupt in the sense that they were elected to be a representative of their district in Congress and represented as a, a senator represents his state with a long range view. That's a six-year term, not a two-year term. The design of our government was unheard of and people wanted to come. And I just picked up my passport because I'm leaving tomorrow. And on the first page, it says, and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. That's from the Gettysburg address, Abraham Lincoln. This government of the people, by the people, for the people, we're losing that because now it's government of the people by the wealthy people for the people that they can get to consume their products. And so that's an epochal change. It really is because when our country was founded, people wanted to come here because they were were leaving behind persecution for their faith. -hmm. And their religions. And America was a place that had encoded into the Constitution rights, rights. And so there was never a country that has done that ever. The freedom of speech is supposed to give you the permission. Correct.
0: And like we're getting away from that. And I think that it's so interesting to see because. The very thing that I think was going to bring us together is pulling us apart. And that the way that they're leveraging different initiatives from LGBTQ to BLM. It's like, these shouldn't be initiative. It should just be, we're all human. And you right. shouldn't categorize people in this particular way. And when you do that, it just creates groups. And like, I've said this before, and I'll openly say it again. A group is segregation. Yes. So when you have an employee resource group going back to corporate, that is segregation. That's right. I'm just going to come out and say what it is. When you have a group LGBTQ, separation, segregation. Yes. And that's, there's no way to grow as a human race if we continue to do that.
1: We are talking in. Our own star chambers, right? And we're not relating with those that are outside. And some of these groups have become militant. Right. Because there is no diversity within that group. Right. Because you think about it that way. And the need is for those voices to be in not segregated groups, but diverse groups. Right. To work on the issues that the ERG is purportedly formed to do but that's another echo chamber so get in the echo chamber and then everybody gets riled up and somebody gets militant and let's go let's go on strike and so rather than having different people with different opinions being in a group that addresses the values that lead to behaviors, Hello. and that's what we should, we should be working on is alignment of, I'm not saying that everybody has to share those values, but if they're going to be in disorganization, that these are the values, then you might want to work somewhere else. And that's okay. It's okay.
0: And that's okay. But okay, so you brought up something that, as we already talked about, something near and dear to my heart and yours is just the importance of values, right? There was something that you shared with me some time back of the tool of inference, and then you did some study on that, and you built another component, which I thought was very fascinating. Could you talk us through that? I have, actually, I can pull it up. Yeah. What starts I- off, you, I'm sure you probably have it memorized, but I'm just, for the, for those, you know, the audience, sure. I want to go ladder of inference really quick. Just to walk the ladder, and then I want you to talk through your model, which is the angles yeah. of inference. We observe data first, right? Then we select that data, and then we add meaning to that. Then we make assumptions. And then from those assumptions, we create conclusions. And then when right. we have these individual conclusions. That's what shape our beliefs. And guess what happens when we have these beliefs? Those right. inform our actions, right? So I think that if you're in an echo chamber and you're hearing the same thing over and over, you're selecting this data, you're adding those meanings. Now you have this belief, whether you're advocating for X, Y, and Z, you put it there, that's going to influence your actions. So I I found it really fascinating and it inspired me to also create, to add to the angles of inference, which yours is, is, I think, more valuable in a group setting for groupthink and for corporate organizations or for just for just groups of people in general. This makes sense. So could you walk us through the angles of inference?
1: Yeah, definitely. And you're so right that what we infer right through this process, a cognitive process, it reinforces our beliefs and our values and the angles of interest angles of inference Is because Peter Senge wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, and in that book, he put that out there to say, if you're going to be a learning organization, you need to understand how our brains and our bodies respond to draw conclusions. And that's a really important thing, because he starts it with observable data. So it's there. We all can see it. Right. But we all have blinders. We all have filters. And so we select data that supports our case or is aligned with our values. And with that selected data, then we add meaning based upon our values and beliefs, which causes us to make assumptions and have the conclusions. And we can debate each other all day long. About our conclusions, but if we don't climb back down that ladder to set ladder to examine assumptions that you may have made, or I may have made, and what did you see, or what did you read? We read the same thing, but we took different parts. and we made so if we don't compare notes, on right collected data. Now I'm moving on my angle adding meaning making assumptions and making conclusions and you are doing the same thing but we haven't compared notes and your values are compelling you to be selective about data that's different than the data I took out of it and the meaning your the meaning for you is different than the meaning for me your assumptions are different than my assumptions and that is It's in alignment here. If it was perfect alignment, we would come to the same conclusions. Right. But the farther apart we start with our values and beliefs, the farther apart our conclusions are going to be. Right. And there's no resolution for that unless you come back down the ladder. And the way you use this is you say, did you make any assumptions in getting to that conclusion? or Another way, not so pedantic, is what led you to that conclusion? I believe that person is blah, blah, blah. Wait a minute. Is, do you know that person is? Are you making an assumption that they are? And so climbing back down our respective ladders to get to the event and then say, okay, what are you taking from that data? Because I've taken something different. So if we recognize that you selected data and I had different data, that's where the start is the divergence starts there. So that's just came it just came to me because I would be in discussions, okay. correct? Discussions and dialogue in a moment, but discussions. Where people were just banging each other on the head. No, you, you didn't, you don't understand this. You don't understand that. You don't understand this. You know, so, well, wait, can we just stop and go back down the ladder and say, how did you get to that conclusion? And you surface assumptions and we have to call them out if it's an assumption. Right. Is that a fact? Or is that an opinion? And so when you get back to that, you can have a conversation where you can identify where those differences are. And you can accommodate them or agree to disagree. Right. But at least you've given it an effort to help. Each needs to have the motivation to want to get to a conclusion that we can work together on. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, you'll just take your opinions and you've got your opinion. I got my opinion. But we miss the opportunity to get a third way which is the best way. Right. What's the incentive? What's the motivator? What's going
0: to get someone motivated to, to climb back down that ladder? Because that takes humility, right? To even climb down a ladder if you're a right? If you think about it, going right. back I, down takes humility. What's an incentive for that? Like, how can you incentivize someone?
1: Quality of the outcome. Mm-hmm. Quality of the outcome. And if you want to have teams and organizations that are going to be aligned and productive and efficient and execution, you can put it in the business terms. if we want that, we got to really iron this out. Because here's another of my pet peeves, having worked in corporate a long time. Everybody's in the meeting. We go through, we have some disagreements. We'll say, we'll just agree to disagree. Or the consensus is we're going to do this and everybody's got to support it. It's going to be consensus. And there's a whole definition of consensus that's really important. But the point yeah. is, if we're going to get a consensus and we walk out of the room with the consensus, then we can't have public compliance and have private defiance. That will destroy everything. Because if you have public compliance, like some sa- mm-hmm. salute the flag, yes, right. we're going to do that. Walk out the door and lean over to your buddy and say, this is never going to work. That is private defiant. It's right. not in the room. And you're making a choice to abandon that consensus and stand back and watch it fail is just as harmful as actively trying to create a competing solution Yeah, because it's wasting resources. So you ask me, how do you get there? You have to have a culture. That tolerates this type of interaction and has this safety in that organization to say, Here's my assumption. And somebody else to say, Let's look at that assumption. Let's all look at that assumption. And once we've got there, maybe I made the wrong assumption and you made the right one. But it's not about me and you being right. It's we need to be aligned. And so I told you about discussion is a word with the same roots of percussion and concussion, right? Discussion is not necessarily healthy. Dialogue, the word means literally meaning flowing through dialogue. So having a dialogue about something, is we both want to or we all want to get to the truth, to the closest to the objective truth that we can get to. And instead of discussing, arguing our conclusions, right, we're having a dialogue about, hey, what did you select? What did you infer? And how do you got that c- to that conclusion? And go back down the ladder as many times as you need to. But that's dialogue. Right. Meaning flowing through. The word meaning
0: things. flowing through wow, I just learned something that I did not know that was the direct meaning. I've been learning this entire conversation, as I always do, and that's why I always enjoy our conversations. But when was the Tool of Inference thesis created?
1: The Angles? Yeah, the Angles, yeah. Yeah, the Angles of Inference, that was in 2005, 2006
0: interesting the reason i asked is because looking at the ladder of inference on the basis of the tool of inference that you wrote i find it very interesting that the observed data and the event is where it's placed on the ladder and mm-hmm. the farther exactly it's crossed and the farther our values is That's we're right. crossing going through observed data and in 2005 I could go on a limb to say the algorithms and technology wasn't as advanced as they are now. Oh, yeah. This is even more relevant now, in my opinion, in regards to observing data than it was then. And yeah. I think that this is, that's why I find it so fascinating and it's so, so relevant because the data that I receive. If we were to both hop one, if we were both to Google something right now, the same exact thing, I would probably see something different than you would see. Yep. And even with Chat GPT now, like you could search the same thing that I'm searching, get different information. And we have to understand that as a people, that's ultimately what it is. Like we're observing this data. I'm going to select it. You're going to add meaning to it. We'll make assumptions and conclusions. But it takes humility to be like, all right, as a human, I might have. Interpret this completely different, or because I am born in this particular zip code, they're going to be forcing this agenda on me. You have to mm-hmm. understand that's how it works, and it goes back to awareness and humility. so I know we touched on like how to, to be humble and come down, but something you mentioned earlier was it starts with awareness what ways outside of having other people identify your blind spots, could you? begin to do some individual work on yourself to
1: create a sense of awareness? I think it's a great question and it's a complex answer, but it starts, I believe, with the individual wanting and desiring to work toward the immutable truth. And I think you were asking a question about how do you get people to want to engage that way? What we really want is How do we get someone goes back to what is our mutual objective? What is our mutual objective? And let's be very conscious of that. If we look visions and missions and all that stuff are great. Right. Very few of them have real power. Right. But some do Merck to improve the human experience or something like that. It's that simple. And so you need to understand with whom you're working, the beliefs and values and aspirations before you can have a conversation about whether you're aligned or not. But once you are, then you need to really be willing to dig into it so that we make the best conclusion that is best for all stakeholders and one that we can all get behind to execute. Interesting. So I
0: actually really love that story because for quite a few reasons, going to see if I can walk through it in my mind. One thing that I, because this question was directed for leaders too, it was just like, how can they become self-aware? One thing that I really, is that when your leader empowered you or encouraged you or shocked you, To become more authentic, if you will,
1: you respect them.
0: That is fascinating.
1: Yes. That's the same thing a drill instructor does in basic camp, right? Right. Break your ego down, and you are part of this unit now. That's with intent. That's with intent.
0: Interesting.
1: So, for those who may be listening who
0: are not in in the corporate space, they may be a creative, they may just, they may be an entrepreneur, may have a small business, whatever but they still lack self-awareness, what are some steps they can take? Because I appreciate the story that was very impactful for me because I'm thinking, wow, it, it is ultimately a shock, right? Like, that's what happens mm-hmm. to me. And sometimes you just need to be shocked in your life. God forbid something bad has to happen in your life before mm-hmm. you become self-aware. But it, there is some form of shock that I believe that has to happen. But what's, right. what you know, for some, for some, but not for all, so what are steps that some who are like, all right, I am looking to become more self-aware and they're aware that they have a lack of awareness. It's a, a tangible step they can take to, to begin to find that awareness.
1: Step one, find somebody who you trust and they trust you. So a trusted relationship, create an environment for them to relay to you their observations and beliefs about you to you create that space to say, I need to hear about, you don't need to tell me how great I am. I'm not looking for that. I want to know from you because I know you love me. I love you. We're brothers. We're man and wife, whatever it is. I need you to tell me what my blind spots are where you have observed where I've taken a path that wasn't, was not appropriately in that situation and you knew it. And I'm not blaming you for not stopping me. That's not what I'm asking. I need to know what's in my blind spot because there are things that we both know about me. There are things that I know about me and you don't know. And I know things about you that you don't know about yourself. But the thing I'm looking for is what is in my blind spot that you've observed have a, as you have a, an observation that you've never talked to me about it, but I've got blind spots. Help me find them. So find a trusted relationship and go through that dialogue. The other way is Absolutely. there's so many different personality tests and things like that's not really going to help you yeah because those are normed for huge population but if you really want to understand how you can be better take the opportunity to learn about emotional quotient the eq take that step because it starts with self-reflection And so that is a reference that I would, anything, it doesn't have to be Daniel Goldman. There's a lot of things out there now, but, but use those resources to at least familiarize yourself with what it means. And there are assessments that go along with that to what degree do you agree with this? To what degree do you disagree with this? Those are assessments that go along with EQ because just start start and you have to thicken up your skin and be ready and remember that if you're choosing someone that you trust they're not going to intentionally hurt you but the best thing that they can do for you is to help you to eradicate something that is a blocker in your life
0: yeah no that I appreciate those two steps. I think that there's a lot of truth in that. That, was, that To me, that's just the whole truth. It, it starts with you need someone, whether that is God that you're leaning on, whether that is a close friend or a partner, you need to start that self-reflection through someone. I believe we all are stars of our own movie, right? We're all actors the main character in our own movie and feel like the world revolves around you. But what humility and awareness does is it allows you to get onto the other person's stage and see the world the way that they see the world. Right. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to agree with everything, everything that you're seeing and hearing on their stage, but it is That's right. Empathic and it, it does show empathy for you to at least walk down and get on stage with. You. And that's important mm-hmm. to do when you're trying to be yeah. become more self-aware. But it does take a little yeah. bit of skin, yeah. does take courage, for sure. And that's something that can be learned over time, but you just got to throw yourself into it, I feel like. Yeah. But yeah, talking about self-awareness and understanding feelings, right? Ultimately a feeling often, like he he felt that you weren't being true. Sure. It's a feeling. That's why I want to lean into to culture. What's ways that companies as a whole oh, and something that you specialize is creating cohesiveness, alignment, teams, and you've done that really well over the years. What's something that they can do to become more self-aware of their culture and ultimately how their people feel?
1: Yeah, I think going back with other experiences and other tools, the commonality is you have to have trust. You have to establish trust at a level sufficient for you to really have some difficult conversations in some cases, but it doesn't have to be about personal. It's about the company. Mm -hmm. And if you trust is the base that allows for creating highly effective teams. And so however you build that trust, you have to build and hold that trust because without that trust, people withhold. Right. And what is withheld is going to impair the ultimate outcome. And, but that environment of trust says, you can tell us, you can tell us what's wrong with it, We're we need you to do that because if we're going to be able to achieve our collective goal we need to be trust each other enough to say i don't think that's the way to go here's what i'm seeing and that i don't i think we're missing this people won't put that into a dialogue unless there's trust right so you have, you have trust then you have the ability to have open dialogue not discussion dialogue right. And that leads to a more thorough examination of the fit with the challenge you're trying to resolve because you're honest about it. And so that allows you to bring in a counter idea without being a distraction because you trust and they trust that we're working towards the same goal. Yeah, what how do you build that layer of trust? Yeah. It's sometimes it takes a long time to do that. The higher the stakes, the longer it takes to have a team that can execute at a high level. I always have in the uh, really effective teams that I've put together over the last couple of decades. It starts with understanding one another as people, not what your role is in the company things we've been talking about today, like how, what was your growing up about and all that sort of stuff. And to get to know someone and relate with them. And then you just create a atmosphere that is safe. And I always start with that. Look, if we can't disagree, then we're never going to be highly effective right? because we have to trust another to, I'm not picking on you. Right. I am seeing something in the idea that I don't believe is going to be aligned with the ultimate outcome. Right. So, you have to create an environment with that. And there's a whole bunch of you've heard me talk about synectics and other things that are help a lot. The language that we use in those conversations are very important. Right. And so, it, so that that's a whole topic of itself, but. Creating trust, building an atmosphere, alignment of values. I always start with organizational values or individual group values because of this whole ladder of inference and the angles of inference. Because we have to understand our counterparts' values. Right. And so we could go on and on, but it's got to be create an atmosphere of trust. Monitor and facilitate that. So as a leader of that group, or you can have multiple leaders, but leaders in that group should be doing the housekeeping. Right. So let's hear, let's listen, let's understand that objection. Right. And don't resist it because there's something in there that is going to make a difference. So, That's how we do it.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think back to incentives, right? Toyota is known for rewarding their employees for making yeah. mistakes. Yeah. And that's right. And it's to your point you just said like you can't be afraid to to not you can't withhold that information, right? So if I'm getting rewarded right. for giving information that eventually actually will save my company money over time, they actually reward you for that. I was like, "Hey, yeah, I yeah. you just messed up." But this $5,000 mess up is actually opportunity cost of $50,000 down the line. So here's, right. A, right. That's very interesting to me.
1: That's framing. Exactly. You frame that exactly right. We're not trying to punish you. We right. want to reward you for being careful enough to notice and hold the rope. They have the rope in their factories. Every individual is empowered to pull that rope and stop that line and they're not punished for that because they saw something they see something they say something and that avoids an accident or something right. like that or you're you, that's framing very good that's a good way to think about it
0: yeah no i just I when i read up on that i was just like wow or heard that i can't remember which one but It was just it was fascinating because I think that's ultimately the way to gain that trust overall is to continually do things like that with your actions. Right. right. You can't just say, Hey, we want you to do these and we want you to come to us with this information that you may want to withheld or withhold, and then you see one of your colleagues do that and then you never see them again. You're like, Okay, they got (laughs) I'm, that's right. I'm going to withheld information. You can't do that. Like your actions got to match what your words are saying. And I think that being able to do what you just mentioned
1: will, will help a, a align that and pull those actions together. And that's why it starts with alignment of values and a vision, right? If you get those two things right, then the ability to collaborate and reach the higher ideal is enhanced. Do you think that? corporations
0: have the opportunity to get it right now or do you think that it's a lost cause
1: no i think they can but they they have to be willing to because it it takes time you got to right. invest time to work on the group and work on the culture before you can go execute and it's a little harder because everybody's we having screen conversations instead of in a real room. You and I had an opportunity to meet in Dallas at that function. And we talked maybe 20 minutes, but that friendship has bloomed because we set aside time every week to check in. And so that's what it requires. So even if you're virtual, you can get those results. At least one meeting in 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 person is good because people are more open when you're breaking bread and having a glass of wine, but you can still do it right still do it yeah, I agree, I agree we have what's do you think and this is like this is
0: outside of culture, just in general least speaking, what do you think the greatest equalizer is greatest equalizer within Within the organization? Like, not even within an organization. Just generally speaking in the world, like what equalizes everyone? What's the greatest equalizer? Love. Ooh, I haven't heard that one yet.
1: Love. Oh wow. Why is that? Happen. Because with love you have an attitude of grace. Oh. And it's not limited to longtime friends. It's limited to Person you meet in the street and is in need, love. That's the equalizer. And if you have that spirit, we we have a whole other podcast about servant leadership and stewardship. But that's what it's all about. And the best run companies are led with people who have love for not just the workers but their customers their colleagues, and their society.
0: It was another good day. We had another good day. And if you line up enough good days, fuck around have a good
1: life.